Over the past few weeks, we've had the opportunity to dive in and look deeper into, into the story, not just of Nehemiah, but the story, the larger story, the story of God. We started the, the whole series and we had named it Rebuild because there was a task that Nehemiah was given in chapter one, the first week, we kind of explored what this task was, was all about. We explored the passion that drove Nehemiah to this task. We explored the burden that he had for his hometown with walls that were decimated by their enemies. As we read of his commission and as we read of him being called, we were reminded that we too, God calls us too to build, to rebuild certain areas of our lives. My hope and my prayer as we progress through these, uh, through these last couple of months, God has enlightened you, illuminated you in a certain area of your life or a certain aspect of your community that needs rebuilding. And he has empowered you and he has inspired you to take on the task. That's what Maya does. But the question we've attempted to answer all along the way is how? How are we to rebuild? How do we trust and rely on God in this process? How do we hope for his help to accomplish what he wants us to? The book of Nehemiah reminds us to consider God's larger story. The task of rebuilding the wall was not the entire story. There was a bigger one at play. There's something larger and far-reaching than the story that we just read here in, in Scripture. God's story is not limited to what he's doing through Nehemiah in that moment or what he's doing through you in this particular moment. There is a larger story that we all fit into. And that's what the book of Nehemiah reminds us of. As the story progresses, you see them take on the task. They start building and all of a sudden, there's criticism. There is opposition. People don't like it when he takes on this task of rebuilding. We were reminded that we are to trust God. Trust him to deal with, our, to deal with the opposition. Trust him to deal with the criticism as we do our job. We were reminded how we build is as important as what we build through these series. And also, that in this process, there will be moments where you are fearful. There will be moments of confusion. There will be moments of conflict. There will be moments that you have no idea how you will progress. But we will remind through Nehemiah's life that God is ultimately in control. That we do not fear man, but instead fear him. And when we get that fear right, we're on the right path. There's the story of Nehemiah. As we moved into chapter 8, we see the wall coming to completion and the effect of the reading of the law amongst the people. They, are, they, are, they hear the word being spoken to them. They hear the law being spoken to them and they're broken, broken to their hearts and they start crying and Nehemiah says, stop, it's time for rejoicing because the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen. The joy of the Lord comes in at the intersection of our sorrow and his grace. That's what we were reminded of. And as they continued to encounter the word, 
As they continue to encounter the law that was being preached to them, being spoken to them, they are broken. They realize that they have been a rebellious people, a people that have ignored and rebelled against what God has instituted for them. And they're broken to their core. They realize that as they hear the law being spoken to them, being read to them, they have a better understanding of who God is. And when you understand who God is, you realize how sinful we truly are. As you draw near to God, you realize what's in here. That's what the that story of Nehemiah reminds us of. And finally, last week, we saw the people. The Israelites, they are joyful. They come together, and here's the temple completely done. Here's the wall that's completely done, and they've decided they're going to dedicate it. We talked about dedication and how they had set up choirs. They set up, if you could only be there, if I could only be there to watch this show. They, they have choirs going on both sides of the wall. They go around and come together in this jo- a song of joy, in this song full of ceremony and pomp and circumstance. There's so much going on. It's beautiful. This is the crescendo. This is the high point of a rags-to-riches story. Here are people just a few days ago, a few years ago, they didn't have a home. They were in exile. They were sent out of homes. They were chased away. They were taken away as slaves. And here's God bringing them back. God rebuilding a nation. This is what movies are made of. Great, wonderful stories. And who doesn't love a fairy tale ending, right? We titled our series, and they lived. The temptation is to put happily ever after, but then comes chapter 13. (laughs) This was one of the biggest revivals that the people of Israel had seen. In that generation, they've never experienced God like they experienced God in that moment. The people are finally their home they're confronting their own sin. They're dealing with the things that are happening in their own lives. And they are as close to God as they would ever be. Then comes the 13. Number 3, 2003. The hit television show, Extreme, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, started. Anyone remember that show? A few, a few fans, right? I personally, I love that show. It, it would come on Sunday nights. It was, it was of the stories behind it. It's just one of my, my favorites. I would I look forward to watching it. And it was a guilty pleasure, I guess. For ABC, it was one of the highest rated shows in one of the, one of the years. They ran for nine years. And in the, it, it, at its peak, they had over 15 million viewers. It was the top 15 shows in the whole week. So if you haven't come across the show... Or if you're too young to even know what that show is all about, let me, let, me, let me read a little review that a critic wrote about it. Extreme, Hakeover, Extreme Home Makeover is a feel-good show in which a deserving family with a hard luck story and an inadequate home gets their press answered by Pierre Ty Pennington, a celebrity that even included Michelle Obama in, in one episode, a can-do team. They would come together, the TV crew descends, tears are shed, the old home is demolished, more tears are shed, 
An elaborate new domicile tailored to the, to the family's needs and interest is thrown up in a matter of hours by volunteers, pros, and the magic of TV. The family shows up after a week of vacationing. The family, along with the crowds, yells out the tagline, Move that bus. Move that bus. <laughs> More tears are shed. The finished product is always spectacular. You sit and you watch that, watch that show and you're, you're sitting there going, man, look at that. The house is beautiful. Everyone there is left in tears because of what had just happened for that family. It definitely was a satisfying hour of TV. When the show aired, it was wildly popular because... There was something inside of all of us that said, you know, here's a family who deserves it. Here's someone who has struggled their whole life. And here's someone who has, who has fought, who has fought, and they're still fighting, and they need something good to come. So, until the show airs, everything's good to go. The show airs, we're all filled with joy. But the real challenge begins after the show ends. You see, the, the producers of Joe, they had they had not figured out one part of this, this part of the equation. They had figured out how to get the house, how to get in there without paying all the taxes for income and all that. They had figured out how to give this family the home, how to get all the equipment in there, how to get Sears to pro- throw in a whole bunch of Kenmore elites, and they had figured all that out. But what they did not figure out is what happens when they leave. You see, a house that probably was worth $120,000 would now become a four hundred or $500,000 house. The family who could only afford a $120,000 house now has to pay taxes on a $500,000 house. They have to pay utilities for a house that was once a 1,000-square-foot home for a house that's now three to 4,000-square-foot home. They didn't realize now the family is stuck, not with a dream, but with a burden. Some families reported that their tax bills had tripled. Their utility bills, one family reported, was in the 700 to 1200 range a month. Most of these recipients, they ended up filing for bankruptcy. They ended up being foreclosed on. They ended up taking mortgages on their homes just so that they could pay off their bills. What happened? What happened when the dream became a curse? In chapter 13, Nehemiah returns to King Artaxerxes. After 12 years, he goes back to resume his cupbearer responsibilities. He's just coming off of the spiritual high. That move the bus moment where he r- reveals the temple, he reveals the wall, people are in great shape, and he says, okay, now I can go. He goes back to the king, and, if, and it's not specified how much time he takes, but he comes back a little while later. And what he comes back to is that went from a dream to a curse is what went from a dream, what he had thought what revival was all about, what reformation was all about, to the exact opposite. See, in verses 4 and 5, we just heard it being read, and let me read this for you. Now, before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, 
prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. The priest, in the original text, it says, was related. There was some sort of, a, there was a marriage relationship that happened somewhere in the family. And now they are, they are relatives. And the priest, instead of protecting the sanctity of the house of God, instead of protecting the sanctity of the, the temple of God, instead clears out the space that they would store their offerings in. And he creates a suite for Tobiah. Now Tobiah, if you remember a few, from a few chapters ago, this is the same Tobiah that looked at the people of Israel and he said, what are they building? Look at that wall. If a fox runs on it, it will fall down and crumble. It's that same Tobiah. The same Tobiah that was a pain in Nehemiah's side. That Tobiah, the one that was enemy to the children of Israel, the one that was enemy to the people, to the work of God, now is living in the house of God. What happens when the dream becomes a curse? Nehemiah comes back. He returns from the king. He comes back to Jerusalem only to find the things have fallen apart. He finds that compromise on the part of the priests led to the neglect of the house of God. Compromise led to the enemy taking hold inside the house of God. Compromise. You see, the opportunity for compromise came when Nehemiah left. When the cat's gone, the mice will play. Nehemiah leaves and the priest compromises. See, the reason why was because this reformation for the people was not built, for this priest was not built on a relationship with God, it was just built on the externals. As long as Nehemiah was here, I would, everything was okay. When he left, I could go back. As we read through these chapters, the word points at us too and asks that same question. What is your devotion built on? Is it just the externals? Is it just the show? Is it just the people that are watching? Is it just the image that you have to keep up? We continue reading in verses 8 and 9, and Nehemiah comes, he's ready to respond. He says, I was angry, and I threw out all the furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I like this. <laughs> then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with grain offerings and frankincense. The cure for compromise was Nehemiah coming back. What is evident here is that the Israelites' devotion to God was not based on a true relationship, but instead, it was more allegiance because of what watched over them. It was an allegiance to Nehemiah, not really based on their relationship. When he leaves the picture, they're back to their old ways, essentially. Again, he, he, he studies the, the camp, and he realizes he returns to find that the sad neglect of the temple because the Israelites basically stopped giving. They stop tithing. The wood is not being gathered. No one is providing the animals for sacrifice. No one is bringing in what is needed for the Levites to be able to work and to, be, to serve in the temple. So now the Levites are having to leave the temple to go support themselves. 
The neglect of tithes led to an abandonment of duty. When the people did not give, those who had to serve left. Here's a picture of absolute neglect. And Nehemiah searches deeper and he sees that their quest for profit led to an absolute disobedience to the commands of God. In verses 15 through 22, you see, you see Nehemiah look out and he sees on the Sabbath day, there is a lot of selling. There is a lot of commerce that is happening when it was specifically said, do not do work. The Sabbath is a day of rest. And here they are buying and selling. When they realized a little extra money on the Sabbath could be made, they ignored the Sabbath. They let the force come in. Scripture's Syrians who were there selling fish during the Sabbath. Once again, Nehemiah is decisive in his actions, and I love it. He stops all commerce during the Sabbath. In verses 21 and 22, he says, But I warned them and said to them, Who do you lodge outside the wall? Who do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Man, this guy's good. <laughs> From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. In each case, Nehemiah is taking good, strong action to clean up the problem. He is right. He has every right to take these steps. But the question we have to answer, something we have to think deeper about, what does the failure of the system The reformation that just happened maybe not even a few years ago all of a sudden has collapsed. All all the the miracles that God had done is so quickly forgotten. The protection, the sustenance, the the maintenance of the the wall as as they watch God at work all of a sudden is forgotten. All the work that Nehemiah invested in the community seems to be lost. Again, he looks deeper. He looks closer at his community and he says, he sees that there is marriages between the Jews, between those in Israel's camp and the foreigners. This was, an, this was not a new problem for the Israelites. In this chapter, he recounts the history He recounts how Solomon, he had foreign wives, and they led him astray. He recounts of how Balaam gave advice saying, send your women. He gives advice to the Ammonites and the Moab and says, send your women so that by them they will be drawn away from their God. In verse 25, he says, and I confronted them and cursed them. I love this. And he beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Can't do that today. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons for yourselves, or your sons or for yourselves. See, when we come across a passage like this, there has to be a quick word of caution. The context back then and the context today is a little different. And so it it deserves some explaining. You see, when the Israelites were commanded to be separate from the nations, it was not to preserve racial exclusivity. 
This, especially in the time of Nehemiah, was not so much a race issue as it was a faith issue. It was God telling those of faith and those without faith shouldn't mix. He was not saying, because you're a different race, you have no part in this. You see, in the Mosaic Law, there was a way for a foreigner to come, become a part of the Israelite community. There was a process that they could go to, go through. So it was not so much a race thing, but it was more a faith thing. God is looking at his people and saying, I want to pr- you to preserve your faith. I want you to keep your faith alive. And by bringing those who are faithless, it erodes away. Even today, he's let each of us say, when you mix the faith and the faithless, your faith takes a hit. There is a price to be paid when we start mixing the things of God and things not. There is a price. Even as we look into our own lives, I'm hoping that we're reminded of those things that need to be checked. Those things that need to be corrected. And I hope, just like Nehemiah, we have the audacity to go and deal with it. In the Reformation that Nehemiah leads, discipline was inevitable. We come to chapter 12, and there's great joy. It seems like everything is done. And if only the chapter had ended there, we would have loved it. But there's always Chapter 13. One of my favorite pastimes, um, the day after Thanksgiving. I don't know what, you're, what, you're, uh, what you do. The one movie that always comes on the day after Thanksgiving is, anyone? It's a Christmas movie. Nope. Nope. Man, no one. It's just me, huh? Home Alone. Come on, come on. It's my ritual. I will not give it up. <laughs> Sometime during the day, there is one channel somewhere in the 130-something channels that I get that will play that movie, and I will be watching it. I've watched it hundreds of times, and I still love it. But there is a moment in the movie when everything, we all know the premise. The McAllister family flies off, leaves their kid behind, Kevin protects the house from being burglarized. And all of a sudden, everything is back to normal. This little kid put the house back together. There's that moment where the family is reunited, and you think it's all good. Finally, there is resolution. And as the last scene, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to it, in that last scene, when the credits are just about to come up, there's a scream from guess whose room? The brother. The brother. Bus's room. Cheryl loves it. There's a scream comes from Buzz's room. Kevin! And I love that moment because there is no resolution. We know exactly what's wrong. There is this picture-perfect moment of everything being made okay. But yet, there is that chapter 10. There are still things to be fixed. You see, in the Reformation that Nehemiah leads, it's not complete. It's not perfect. There is disappointment. But the question we often ask is, in these moments of disappointment, can there be hope? Is this complete? Is this it? 
Or is there more? See, in chapter 10, the Israelites, they just read the law. They're broken to the core. They are, they are despondent. They're crying out saying, God, forgive us for we, ha- for we have sinned and done evil in your sight. Would you have mercy on us? And so they resolve, much like we do at the beginning of the year. They said, God, we're going to make these resolutions. We're going to sign a covenant, and this is what we're going to do. And here's what they declare. First part of the covenant We will not intermarry with foreigners. John, do you have those slides? Yeah. We'll not intermarry with foreigners. The second, we will keep the Sabbath. The third, we will tithe to the temple. And the fourth, we will not neglect the house of our God. Do these look familiar? Do these sound a little familiar? You see, God, when he's putting all this this story together for us to be able to read today, he's communicating something so clear. All those provisions in the covenant that they had made, they would break just a mere years later. In each case, the marriage with with foreigners, the breaking of the Sabbath, the tithing that they stopped, the neglect of the house of God. Nehemiah comes in and he's attempting to reform it. He takes decisive steps. But again, the question, why did that failure happen in the first place? What does that failure speak to? See, this was the name of the Reformation. The people who had experienced one of the greatest revivals in their times just could not maintain it. They had received this beautiful house, On TV, everything was great, but they could not afford to keep it going. They would not and could not maintain the lives that they said they were committing to. So again, is this the end? This is how the Reformation that Nehemiah starts, it ends. The way the book ends is not with a bang, but with a whisper. The question then stands, is there hope in such disappointment? You see, the end here is significant for two reasons. That's how the book of Nehemiah ends. But when we first began this series, Pastor Rick, when he was speaking, he had us all take out your Bible, and I'm going to do the same. So if you have a Bible with you that's not a phone that you can flip through, go ahead and pick it up. Find the last page of Nehemiah. See, if you have the same Bible as I do, page 410. And now go all the way down to the last book in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi. You see, this is why it's significant. Nehemiah is happening at the same time as Malachi. Nehemiah is the end of the Old Testament. This much happens before Nehemiah starts. Nehemiah and Malachi are contemporaries. So the question again, this is such a depressing end 
for the book of Nehemiah, but not just the book of Nehemiah, for the entire Old Testament. This is the people who were, who were the promised people. These are the people who were chosen. This is how it ends. What a disappointment. So what do we make of the book of Nehemiah? What do we make of the Old Testament? You see, this is one of the, probably the most anticlimactic endings in a book or a series of books. This is not the way you or I would write the book if we had to do it. The story of Nehemiah, again, let me remind you, is connected to a bigger story. It was never just about the wall. It's about God's relationship with his people. It's a small view of a much larger story that God is writing. It relates to that bigger story. And so, if that is the truth, if there is a bigger story, what is happening? What is happening with the relationship that God has with his people? How could it end this way? If this is truly the end of the Old Testament, what has happened? Did God just all of a sudden give up on his people? See, after the last book is written, for the next 400 years, there's silence. There are no books in our Bible for the next 400 years. Where is God? Where has he gone to? Is this the end of the story? How do we make sense of Nehemiah? D.A. Carson, a theologian, he, he deals with Nehemiah 13 and he says, some people say that the lesson we should derive from Nehemiah is this. There is sin at the beginning, sin in the middle, and sin at the end. Because all this takes place under the old covenant, that's all there is. Sin in the beginning, sin in the middle, sin at the end. You see, sin starts all the way in the Garden of Eden. In the book of Genesis, you see sin creeping in. And the people of Israel, the people, the God's chosen people, they're never able to break out of that cycle of sin. They would sin and they would cry out to God for mercy. God would forgive them and they would enjoy peace. They would enjoy goodness for a little bit and they would go right back to their sin. Then they would come back. They would cry out to God for mercy. God would have mercy on them and they would enjoy goodness. And guess what they did after that? They sinned again. There's a cycle that they fall into. If you want to understand it, read through the book of Joshua. Read through the book of Judges. Read through the book of the Kings and you will notice that it is sin Cleansing, judgment, there is just so much. This cycle continues and continues and continues. And here we are at the end of the Old Testament, and that cycle still keeps going. There is sin at the beginning, sin in the middle, and sin at the end. See, whenever we come across moments like this, when we have moments where we're stuck in that rut of whatever you're facing, That cycle that you just cannot break out of. We have things that we fall back on. You see, in the book of Nehemiah, the people fell back on to what they thought was right. What was comfortable for them. When you're facing situations like this, what are those things you fall back on? You see, some of us, we look into ourselves. We tell ourselves that if only I can better myself, if only I can stop, if only I white-knuckle my way through it, I will be better. If only I lose that extra weight, if only I fix myself up, if only I buy a nicer, nicer house, I buy a nicer car, if only I work some extra hours. 
The reality is that the version of you 10 years from now with more money, with better hair, with those six-minute abs will still disappoint you. It will never be enough. Every new year, millions of us make resolutions and promises to make ourselves better. We know how that goes. We hope that if we just persevere, if we just do the right things, say the right things, think the right thoughts, it'll be better. We will find happiness and satisfaction that we're hoping for. If we're honest with ourselves, we will realize that we're dismal failures. Looking inward never helps. All right, then what else? What do we do? Some of us look to others. If only I find the right spouse, things will be okay. If I have the right girlfriend or the right boyfriend, or have the right number of children, things will be great. We hope that someone else will provide us meaning for where we look for meaning. We hope that someone else will complete us and bring us satisfaction. Well, let me break it to you. It's not going to happen. Sometimes we turn to those, the things of the world. Some of us, in dealing with these moments of crisis, these moments of just a cycle that we'll never be able to break out of, what do we turn to? We turn to things. We turn to food. We turn, turn to drink. We turn to alcohol. We turn to drugs. We turn to the things that bind us even more. If only we bought the right things. If only we look a certain way. Every one of these pursuits will disappoint us. Some of us turn to religion. There's a comfort there. There's a comfort that if only I did the right things, I would please God. If only I... I did the right, uh, said the right prayers, if I did the right pilgrimage, if I did the right things, God would be pleased. Maybe by, by doing a little more good, I can tip the scales. That's our default. Almost every ex- religion in existence today says, I will give you a list of rules and we'll see if we can make you happy. So he asks, do these, he asks, what is The difference between Christianity and all the other religions? The answer is grace. Every other religion says, do this. Do this. And you'll find happiness. Religion does not do it. These are all temporary fixes. If we seek meaning and hope in these places, trust me, we will be disappointed. We are bound to come up short like our friends in the Old Testament. We're bound to come up short like the friends in, in Nehemiah, and we're bound to end up right back in the cycle. If we do not find resolution in the book of Nehemiah, we don't find resolution in the Old Testament, what do we turn to? Ravi Zacharias most of you have heard him, read, of, read one of his books. He shares a story. In 1974, a few weeks before Cambodia fell, this is Ravi, he was preaching in Phnom Penh. I remember going to see a play. In the play, a prince had stolen the wife of a peasant who was newly married. The prince refused to give her back and told the woman that if she, was, if she ever said that this man was her husband, he would kill the husband in front of her. So when the peasant went to the king asking that the prince return the wife, the king said, 
all right, let's call her in and ask her. She comes in and says, that man is not my husband. The prince is my husband. The peasant is dismayed. Upon hearing this, a priest jumps into the middle and he says, Your Honor, I have a medicine that when both men drink it, they will have to tell the truth. Both of them drank it. Then he said, Since one of you is going to die, each one of you may spend five minutes with the girl. They hung a huge barrel on a rod and the woman was to hold one end and the prince or the peasant would hold the other end for five minutes and they could talk. The peasant holds one end and the woman on the other. And the woman says, please forgive me. The only reason I said this is, I said what I did is because I'm trying to save your life. Then the prince's turn comes and he goes up and he says to her, if you say that man is your husband, I will kill him. Then the magic of it all, after these 10 minutes are up, the barrel opens up and the little boy jumps out. He had been sitting in there writing uh, writing down the conversations that they were having. And the boy runs up to the king and he says, King, your son is a liar. The peasant is telling telling you the truth. The whole thing explodes into confusion with the king killing everyone. And the girl committing suicide. In Ravi, he's saying, I was ready to celebrate all the way till the ending came. Then I turned to my non-Christian interpreter and asked, what's missing from that play? And the man said, Mr. Zacharias, what was missing in that play was a savior, someone to take up the cost of the needy. You see, what's missing in the story, what's missing in the Old Testament, what's missing in Nehemiah is that, is that savior. If you look closely at the Old Testament, if you look at the story of Nehemiah, they do one thing for us. They point to the need of a Savior. The book of Nehemiah and the Old Testament all speak to the fact that there needs to be someone who can step in and break this cycle. In our lives, there is a cycle that we're stuck in. There is a sin that we're stuck in. There is a need for someone, for a Savior to step in. No matter how much we try, the condition of our hearts will never be fixed. We may hope to build a bigger temple, build a bigger wall, say the right prayers, offer the right sacrifices, then we'll be fine. We'll never be fine. It'll only lead to disappointment. Again, in in those disappointments, it's worth asking, will there be any hope? Nehemiah is simply part of the Old Testament Storyline that keeps saying that there's sin in the beginning, sin in the middle, sin at the end. There's no answer here, but let me show you where it comes from. 400 years later, Matthew writes the genealogy. Matthew writes of a king that was born. Await the ultimate king, the ultimate priest, the ultimate temple, the ultimate sacrifice. We must await for Jesus himself who bears our sin once and for all. In what seems to be a disappointing end to the book of Nehemiah and the Old Testament, it all points to the fact that Christ will bring hope one day. Jesus came to fulfill what was written in the law and all of the prophets, all of it. The Old Testament as a whole is pointing to the fact that there is a Christ coming. 
It may be bleak, it may be dark, but there is the dawn coming. In life, it may look dark, it may look ugly, it may look bleak, but there is one who fulfills the law. You see, in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, we read, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all of it is accomplished. And guess where it is all accomplished? It is accomplished in the one that came and lived it out perfectly. For millennia, people had been trying to live out this law. They've been trying to carry it out perfectly. They failed miserably. We see what, what happens when they try and they try, and yet it does not work. Here's Jesus keeping the law perfectly. All the penalties of the law he takes upon himself on that cross. Romans 10.4, Paul says, For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. In reading this final chapter, I do hope that you do not discount Nehemiah. He does play an important role. You see, the, reform, the reforms that Nehemiah and Ezra, they play, they bring back the people from the exile. They bring back a nation that was scattered, that was de- destroyed. They bring back a nation that would eventually let Christ come into the picture. See, God uses each and every one of us. God uses each and every character in, the, in his scripture. God uses us. We may not be perfect, but he still gets his work done through us. In the disappointment that was the reform, there's still hope. In your disappointments, there's still hope. Christ brings hope when there's none to be found. Christ's death on the cross is the reformation that we have all been seeking. The Old Testament points to this moment. All of those who lived then, they point to this moment. They lived in eager anticipation of the day when Christ would come and reform it all. This is an awesome truth. God no longer requires sacrifice from us. We don't come into Mount Hope with our bulls and our, uh, our lambs. We don't have to do that anymore. Because he was made the sacrifice once and for all. We need this reformation. We were all sinners in need of a reformation. We are those wanderers who kept walking away from God with no hope of restoration except through Christ. This morning as I conclude, I'll invite the worship team back up. But for everyone sitting here, I have a question for you. Would you take a moment? Would you take a moment to consider Christ? Your situation may be disappointing. Your situation may be hopeless. Maybe you've never encountered this Jesus. Maybe you've never heard of what he has done for you. Maybe you've tried your whole life saying, if only I could find satisfaction. If only I could find hope. If only I could be happy. And you've tried it all. You've tried looking inward. You've tried relying on others. You've tried working harder. You've tried it all. My question to you, would you consider Christ? Would you consider him? You see, If the answer is anything but Christ on your quest for satisfaction, 
on your quest for being whole, you will be disappointed. There is no satisfaction to our pursuit apart from him. Without encountering the Jesus who died on that cross, there is no pleasing God. You can try all you want. You will not please him. You will only come up short. The only way to please God is your faith in Christ. As we bow our heads, let me ask you again, would you consider Christ? Would you consider that sacrifice he made? That sacrifice that's complete. That sacrifice that requires nothing else on your part. That sacrifice that only requires you to consider him. Would you consider Christ? If you've been following Christ, maybe for your whole life, maybe for a few months, whatever it is, would you consider him again? Let him reassure you of his completeness, that there is nothing else to be done. Because Christ completes us. Christ brings hope in disappointment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. But we thank you for all the scripture points to that moment. Points to that moment where Christ would get on that cross. And he would bring reformation to us all. He would bring forgiveness to us all. He would bring restoration to us all. Lord, we've tried and you know we've tried to bridge this gap but it has always fallen short. Father, we thank you that you would send your son to bridge that gap for us. Lord, I pray for those of us in this room who've never encountered you, that your Holy Spirit would deal with us. Your Holy Spirit would touch us and make us realize that we need you, that we are going to fall short apart from you. In Jesus' name.